2010. And, uh, you know, I was talking to my wife with a, with a new 2010. What do, you, what do you call this decade? Like there was the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. I don't even know what you call the last decade. What do you call that? Maybe you can, ha- maybe you can help me out. I, I was stumped like the Y2K year. I don't know. But here's what's cool about a new year is that we're given an opportunity to examine what took place, spiritually speaking, in 2009. As we're coming to a close and, and, and we're seeing the opportunity of a new beginning with a new decade, a new year, we can really set ourselves in a spiritual place to ask God where he would have us grow, where he would have us mature. Um, and, and I think is if we purpose this in our hearts, we'll, we'll find that, as, as Britt just said, we'll have a, a, a greater success. And as his people, God's people, we should continue to strive to draw closer to the Lord. Amen? And so oftentimes when you get to the end of a year, you examine the highs and the lows. And right now I want to examine the highs and the lows of a biblical character, and I believe by doing so, we'll be able to draw out application and see how the Lord would have his way with us this morning. So uh, let's, let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would give us, as your people, this moment, this first Sunday of the year, that you would give us, Lord, what is needed for a greater success in our love with you, in our devotion to you, our commitment to you. And so we ask that you would use your word. We ask that as you've preserved it over thousands of years, that you would make it come alive this morning, that we might apply it and become doers of it, pleasing you and bringing glory to you. So we submit this time and ask that you would come in your power and your might through your word by your Holy Spirit. We trust you. It's in your name we pray and all God's children said, amen. Amen. Well, the biblical character that I um, really felt led by the Lord to look at in regards to highs and low is Elijah. So turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. I've always tripped out on Elijah. One, because the New Testament describes him as a man like us. James says that Elijah had a nature like us. And yet he prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain. And then he prayed for rain and it rained. And the application was there to be faithful and diligent in prayer. But as we look at 1 Kings chapter 16, the reason why I have us looking at chapter 16 is because that's where we're going to get the backdrop of uh, the, the life of Elijah. And that was, there was a king, and you read this, I'm reading this in verse 29, King Ahab. King Ahab, as we'll read, is a bad king. And the reason why he's a bad king is because it says in the word of God that he had done 
evil in the sight of the Lord by marrying a woman, Jezebel, by setting up uh, false idols of Baal. He set up worship centers, temples to uh, Baal. And uh, it also says later that he did more. Verse 33, Ahab made a wooden image and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the other kings in Israel. So basically the backdrop is, is Israel was in complete shambles. It was not a good time in Israel because their hearts were divided. Because their king had led them astray in false idol worship. And so there was a lot of corruption uh, sexually. Uh, it was uh, brought into the worship of Baal and Asherah. And, and again, I can't explain enough of how horrific God's people were at this point. It says enough just the fact that King Ahab had done great evil in the sight of the Lord and he had done more evil and to provoke the Lord than any other king. And so it's very safe to say that the nation at this point of Israel was in shambles. So God raises up Elijah, speaks to Elijah. We see in verse 1 of chapter 17 that he says, the Lord says, go tell King Ahab that there's going to be a drought for three and a half years. This was a judgment to come to turn the people back to God. And so a widespread persecution of God's worshipers and prophets took place. And so God told Elijah to go to the brook where he would be fed by ravens. If you're familiar with the story, it's, it's sweet. So he goes, God preserves him in this place where there's a little brook of water in this drought. And God feeds him with ravens that bring him food in the morning and he drinks of the water from the brook. But then the brook dries up and now God says to Elijah, go, there's a widow who's going to take care of you. And so he goes to this widow with her son and they're at a place where they're looking in shambles because of the drought. All they have left is some flour and some oil. And so the widow even says to Elijah, because Elijah, when he approaches her, says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm thirsty and I'm hungry. Can you feed me? And she says, well, me and my son are about to die. We're about to run out of flour and oil. He says, well, that's okay. Just make me something to eat and then we'll go on our way. And here, it's, it's pretty sweet how we see the never-ending jar of oil and flour. It's a funny miracle. I call it the miracle of tortillas. It's like the recipe for a good tortilla. Uh, probably in that time, it was more like uh, a pita bread, but a pita bread is not that far from a tortilla, right? So here we have this never-ending jar of oil and flour that God provides again for Elijah, the widow and the widow's son. But then the widow's son gets really ill and he dies. And then the story goes on where Elijah takes the widow 
the widow's son upstairs and he leans over and he prays. And God, here's the prayer of this prophet, his son. And he resurrects this kid. And it's at this point that the widow says, wow, now I know that you're a man of God. It's pretty interesting that the, the, the conversation, that the endless miracle of the flour and oil didn't validate him being a man of God, but it was when she saw that, wow, this guy just prayed for my son who was dead, and now he's alive. And then as we go on reading the story, uh, the, the, the son comes uh, to life, and and, and, and God says to Elijah, okay, I want you to go back to King Ahab and let him know that there's a rain to come. And we see that in chapter 18. Verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so moving on, we... Uh, basically see next the big account where Ahab and Elijah meet. And you find this in verse 17. It says that it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, it is you, O troubler of Israel. And Elijah answers, I'm not the trouble of Israel, but you and your father's house have. You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Meaning these were false prophets that were um, validated by the courts. Of Israel. So then Ahab sends for the children of Israel. He gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel for a showdown. And this is what Elijah says to the people. Verse 21 How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Interesting enough, the people answer, with not a word. Not a word was said. Yet it was a very logical and useful question. Because in general, the people of Israel, spiritually speaking, were always lukewarm and divided in their devotion. And as we know that our God does not wish to have a relationship with someone whose heart is divided. You're either for me or you're against me. Spiritually speaking, Israel was like an unfaithful partner in marriage who doesn't want to give up the marriage partner but doesn't want to give up the lover. So is true today. We like the partnership we have in our marriage with the Lord as the bride, but so often we're unfaithful with some lover, some false idol. 
And Elijah says, how long will you falter? The ancient Hebrew word translated for falter means to limp, to hop, to, to, hop, to dance, and to leap. And Elijah here is making it clear that you either follow, follow God or follow these idols. You can't do both. You can't serve two masters. It's a good message for us to examine our hearts in regards to where our devotion is. Because perhaps in the minds of the Israelites, you know, like many of us today, we we see the benefits of God, and so we come on Sundays, and we are willing to engage here and there, but not willing to completely die and give up uh, the false idols in our lives. And, and to be frank, I don't have a list of false idols of what false idols look like in a modern day sense, but they're very, very like the false idols of then. The sexuality, the devotion given in, into emptiness. And so Elijah knew it could never be this way, that there, there had to be a line drawn in the sand. And rightfully, he asked, how long will you falter between opinions? I like what Charles Spurgeon says in regards to this text. He says, Elijah appeals also to the hearers and account for the period of time which they have not made a decision between Yahweh and Baal. How long, he asked them, How long? How many more sermons do you want? How many more Sundays must roll away wasted? How many warnings? How many sicknesses? How many toilings of the bell to warn you that you must die? How many graves must be dug for your family before you will be impressed? How many plagues? How many pestilence must ravage the city before you turn to God in truth? How long Will you falter between two opinions? And the response of the people was silence. They lacked the courage to either defend their position or to change it. They were unwilling to examine their hearts in regards to where they stood. See, because it's so easy to be numb. It's so easy to be in that place of lukewarmness. It doesn't take any effort. It takes great effort to march on in regards to our walk with Christ. I mean, just think of it in a physical uh, realm. Like to move upward or to move forward, it takes a lot of strength. But to go downhill, it takes nothing. And that's where these people were. Their response was nothing. They were not willing to examine. And friends, I, I really believe in 2010, we as a church need to spend more time examining our hearts in regards to where our devotion is. It's something that should be done often. Jesus, in talking about communion, said, do this in remembrance of me. Meaning it was to be done often and it was to be done in regards to what he has done on the cross. 
And so that's why we have these carpets so that you come and examine your heart where you are in relationship to God. We have to be willing to examine. We have to be willing to allow the Lord to speak into our lives. When there's idols, we have to be willing to respond so that we're able to repent. And here we find that these people were not willing to repent. They weren't willing to change. They were willing to just sit in the pew, so to speak, and do nothing. And if we're looking to grow and mature in the Lord, that is not going to cut it. Dancing between the two is not going to cut it. See, today God, God has given us an opportunity to make application and to draw close to him. Again, these carpets are not here for you to come and examine the lint. But communion in this space is available so that we come and examine our hearts. So that we don't spend a long time faltering between. We can't serve two masters. And Elijah knew this. And so as the story goes on, it's this moment, this moment where God is looking to all of Israel and all the false prophets. He gathered them all because he wanted them all to see who God was his power, and his majesty. And so he was confident when he set up the showdown. Many of you guys are familiar with the showdown, and that is he calls all the prophets, all 850 of them, and he says to them, hey, you guys set up the altar. Here's a bull. You call upon your God, and don't put any flames because the one true God will consume the sacrifice. And so you read in verse 26 of 1 Kings 18, they took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. So they began to leap and falter about the altar which they had made. Verse 27 says, And it was so at noon that Elijah began to mock them. I love this part. This really speaks to me. (laughs) Elijah sees the depravity and the stupidity of this false idol worship. And he mocks them. Saying, cry out aloud. For is he God? We have a showdown, and your God didn't even show up. Some translations really press that he was mocking them, mocking him in such a way and says, what, is your God in the toilet? Is he constipated? He's not showing up. Where is your God? And so they start to cry out louder. And they began to cut themselves, as it was their custom, with knives until they bled and blood had gushed all over them. 
Don't you see these tactics of the enemy still today? People cutting themselves out of frustration and darkness. Whether it's just literally cutting themselves or literally in darkness, in their depravity, in their false idol worship, the damage that takes place, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, God understanding that this is what happens when you go your own way. He's not seeking for us to worship him because he's uh, this God who is in need of worship. He doesn't need us, but he desires us in that relationship. That's why he sent the prophet to show everybody that, hey, the direction you're going in, the false idol worship, that only leads to destruction. And so then the moment comes where God shows up in response to verse 37 as Elijah prays, Hear me, O Lord. Hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God. And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Again, that was the heart behind all of this, was that people would turn back to God. And it was at that moment, at that prayer, that bam, fire came from heaven. Consumed the sacrifice, the altar, the 12 stones, the water, everything. Because there wasn't to be a shadow of doubt And God still, till this day, shows without a shadow of a doubt that he's in control, that he is God, and there is none like him. But what takes place now is interesting. Because as Elijah calls upon the fire, the fire consumes... And then Elijah, now very obedient. You can't miss, as you look at the life of Elijah, you can't miss that this man was a man of obedience. So now he goes and he grabs all 850 of the false prophets and he kills them by sword. And then after that, he runs up to Mount Carmel And he begins to pray. Why? Because the Lord had told him that there was a rain to come. And so that's exactly what he does. The text says that he puts his knees to the ground and his head between his knees. And he begins to pray fervently. And in that prayer, God begins to respond again. The rain comes, the clouds come, and the rain begins to fall. And King Ahab is tripping out. He hops in his chariot, and he bolts, and he wants to go report all that has happened to his wife Jezebel. But again, Elijah, not only being a man of prayer, not only being a man who slaughters false prophets and raises up people from the dead, now we see that he's a track star, and he runs, and and somehow he gains the strength and, and there's another showdown. And that is King Ahab is reporting to Jezebel. And Jezebel responds instead of repentance and saying, Oh, wow, our God is, didn't show up and their God consumed the fire. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Instead of that, 
She throws a threat at Elijah saying, hey, by this time tomorrow, within 24 hours, you're going to die. And interesting enough, Elijah buys into it. Somehow this great man of God who calls upon rain, who calls upon fire, is now about to call upon the Lord to kill him. And so he flees at the words of this wicked queen. He flees and he goes about 80 miles south to the city of Beersheba, which was in Judah. And it wasn't even in the city. The the text says that he went beyond the city into the wilderness. He secluded himself. He secluded himself and he prayed, Lord, I wish I would just die. Verse 4 says, he went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and he sat down by the broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it's enough. Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Imagine that, this great man of God. Now we see the highs. Now we see his low. I mean, this is pretty high. His high is pretty high. But his low is pretty low. Now he's in the wilderness crying out to God. Thankfully, this prayer was answered by God with no. In fact, Elijah was one of the few men who never died. His prayer was, Lord, kill me. The Lord's prayer answered was no, so much so that he never actually died. Kind of speaks to us that um, sometimes when the Lord says no, it's for our own good. And we should receive it and say yes and amen. I can imagine as, as he was going in the chariot, going up to be with the Lord, thinking back to the moment, wow, I never died. God, you're so wise. See, God knew the big picture. Elijah at this point was in his low and his eyes were on himself. And that's where many people of God find themselves. And here he is, he's saying, I've had enough, God. It's enough, he says. It's as if he was saying, I can't do anymore. It's too stressful. I'm too exhausted. Somehow, he, he got in this place to where what he, was, he had accomplished wasn't what he thought it was going to be. Maybe he thought that King Ahab and his wife were going to turn to the Lord. Maybe he thought the nation of Israel was going to go on this great uh, uh, move of repentance. But things weren't panning out the way he thought they were panning out. Even though they were at a very high, he thought to himself, man, things aren't working out. 
this wicked queen wants to kill me. And now he's wishing to be dead. It's enough. I'd venture to say that many of us have been in that place where you say, man, God, I can't handle no more. Maybe your job is not panning out the way you thought it was going to pan out. Maybe even in your marriage, you're like, man, it's enough. I, I, I don't see this moving forward. You're just stressed out over the marriage or some difficulty in the marriage and you just feel like you're overwhelmed or you're stressed in it. Maybe it's a ministry that isn't panning out like you thought. We've all been in this place where we're ready to tap out to say, it's enough. But see, God in his wisdom knew that it wasn't enough. Because again, God knew the big picture. God knew that even in Elijah's low, there was a plan that he had. I mean, there was a plan to raise up another king. There was a plan to pass on the baton to Elisha. There was much more to be done. And yet we see that God was not done. And so often in our lives, when we think, God, I've had enough, it's done. He's not done. Otherwise, you'd be dead. You're not dead because there's still a plan. There's still a purpose. He still, even, and this is what I love about this text. God was just as much in Elijah's life as in the high as in the low. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me. Because it's easy to see, like, wow, how potent and powerful God is in this man at Mount Carmel. But guess what? God didn't cease to be God when Elijah was in his low. He didn't step back and say, oh, okay, you're going that route? No. Still pursue. We're going to see that God still pursues him. And, and yet Elijah, at this point, he's, he, it's so obvious that he, 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 his eyes were on himself for the simple fact of saying, man, it must be me or it must be my family, my forefathers. It, it's obvious that his eyes are on himself. They're no longer on God. And let's read on to verse 5 in chapter 19 how God responds. Then he laid there and slept under the broom tree, and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and he said there, By his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he laid down again and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of the food for 40 days and for 40 nights. This was the hand of mercy from God to Elijah. Physically, God knew that he needed to be replenished. 
God knew he needed rest. Friends, listen. We all get in a place where we get stressed, our eyes get on ourselves, and we don't start thinking straight. You're getting confused. And one of the best remedies is to rest. I love this text that God said, go back to sleep, mijo. Here, wake up, and he feeds him again. He goes, you need some more rest. Rest was the remedy. And it's pretty interesting because we, we've been um, in an interesting place as a church where just a couple weeks ago, Britt was saying, hey, God's interested in your spirituality as well as your physical. God saw that the remedy for Elijah was that he needed some rest. I mean, he just had a pretty gnarly week. The guy was, he was slaughtering 850 false prophets, calling upon fire, prayer meetings, track meets. I mean, this, it was, it was unbelievable, weak. And we get in that place too, where we, we not necessarily in our hearts purpose to say, man, I'm going to go the way of Eeyore. I'm going to go the way of Elijah and just, oh, woe is me and we don't usually purpose in our hearts to go in this place of depression or in this place of despondence. It's usually due to our lifestyle and what's happening. And so at this moment, he needed rest and God responded by giving him rest and replenishing him with the food. So he ate and he drank and he laid down. He laid down. He did this over. One nap wasn't enough. I love what one commentator says: uh, the spirit needs to be fed, and the body needs feeding also. Do not forget these matters. It may seem to some people that I ought not mention such small things as food and rest, but these may be the very first elements in really helping a poor, depressed, and servant of God. You know, I think if we look at our calendar, we might find that we put ourselves in a bind just because we're so busy. We're running crazy, and we need to rest. We need to stop and take a nap. I'm longing for my nap right about right now. (laughs) Come 3 o'clock, I'm going to do just that. A holy nap. <laughs> because, listen, and, and I'll be honest with you, at this point in the text, it really ministered to me. Because so often, we get so busy and so caught up. You know, the rest that was instituted in the Sabbath was not for religious purposes. And I think as, as people, as Americans, we're so prone to being so busy. And I know this is an area that I, I needed to examine my heart and see that, man, I, I do get so caught up in busyness. And I, and I love that, that God restored Elijah and, and, and made him. He, 
he met his physical needs because ultimately by meeting his physical needs of rest, there was a greater clarity to when he was about to speak. And the remedy ultimately to Elijah is the presence of God. That's what the Sabbath was set up for. A rest and time with God. We all need that. We all need to carve that out in our lives. And listen, it's interesting as we go on in the text, verse 9, not only does God meet his physical needs in needing rest, but he allows Elijah to vent his frustrations. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, a word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel. They've forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars, and they killed your prophets. Or he's saying, I killed your prophets. I've done all this stuff. He's basically got the case of the Eeyores. And it's all true and very valid. But what I want to point out here is that God allowed him to vent his frustration. Because by doing so, it's like the Lord allowing him to lay his burdens down. And I think as a people of God, we don't do this. When we're stressed, when we're um, at an awkward place of discouragement, when we're, our circumstances begin to overwhelm us, instead of crying out to God, our eyes go inward and we get the case of the Eeyores instead of crying out to God. And listen, this text is clearly indicating that, friends, it's okay to cry out to God. God, I struggle with this. God, I'm overwhelmed with that. God, this doesn't seem like it's panning out. Help. Because guess what? God knows He knows already. He knows your struggles. He knows where you're at. Just like he knew where Elijah was and he met his physical needs, God, when you go to him, knows exactly where you are and where you need to go. He's God. He's proven himself not only in the fire and the rain, but he's proven himself throughout humanity, throughout our history, Just within the last year, couldn't you declare the faithfulness and the goodness of God? Let alone throughout history. God has proven himself to be faithful. Why else would we call out upon God? Why wouldn't we? Excuse me. Why wouldn't we cry out to him? Why wouldn't we vent our frustrations? Because by doing so, we unburden our hearts and allow them to be a little softer for the working of the Spirit and the working of God. Because ultimately, that's what we'll see will happen here. Elijah and his low ultimately is ministered by the presence of God. And ultimately, what God does is he sends him in a continual mission, which he had all along. God had a purpose all along. And even in the lowest of his lows we see that God is faithful and that God had cared to hear his cries. And what's the response of God? How does God respond? Verse 11, God says, 
go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, an earthquake was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After that, the fire was a still, small voice. God knew what this depressed and discouraged son needed. And God brought his presence before Elijah. And that was the remedy, the presence of God in a soft, still voice. But he first wanted to show Elijah where he was not. He was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. Like many others, Elijah probably looked for God in a dramatic manifestation. And certainly God sometimes appears in dramatic manifestations. But God met Elijah in a quiet whisper instead of this earth-moving phenomenon. It was the still, soft voice that was to minister to the depths of this man because he was in the depths. And sadly to say, the noise in our life often drowned out God's voice. We don't have the concentration to meditate on the things of God because we're constantly bombarded by TV, radio, iPods, iPhones, Facebook, this, that, hobbies, whatever it is. Friends, we have to examine in our lives what is clouding the still, soft voice of God. Because I don't know about you, but I, I can't record when the audible voice of God has spoken to me. But I know that he has used his word to speak to me. And that is how God speaks us to, to us today. Through our daily devotion, spending time in prayer, reading his word, meditating on his word, fellowship with the believers, true koinia. Even in our daily routine, God is willing to speak to you on your walk on the bluffs or on your drive on the 101. God is willing to speak to you, but are you willing to position yourself to hear? This season, we need to grow. And so to grow, we need to go to God with open ears and open mind and open heart and an open Bible. Amen? And by doing so, just as Jesus often said, anyone with ears to hear should listen to what the Spirit has to say. Because God knows the big picture. He wants to speak into our lives that we might stay on course. Even in the highs and in the lows, we need to stay intimate and stay positioned so that we're able to respond to the voice of God. As we are looking to be on mission with Christ, we can't miss the intimacy with Christ. 
God, in speaking to Elijah, did so to keep him on mission. He saw his low. He spoke to him for the purpose of arise and go. God didn't want him to stay in that place. He met him in that place, but he didn't want to keep him in that place. Interesting enough, as you look at the text, it provides for an ample amount of time. God didn't just say, hey, get over yourself and move on. God allowed him to vent. God allowed him actually 40 days to go to a place that didn't take 40 days. But God allowed the time that was needed, but ultimately he kept him on mission. He didn't keep him in that place. And so many of us as Christians, we find ourselves so easy to get in a place of the Eeyores, of the woe is me, and it's simply because our eyes are on ourselves and they need to be on Jesus. Because Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He knows the beginning to the end. And if he knows the beginning to the end, why wouldn't we cry out to him? Why wouldn't we press into him? Why wouldn't we give ear to him? Why do we let the world cried out, uh, crowd out the voice that so wonderfully and willingly wants to speak? And so as we come to a close, let us all examine ourselves. Because maybe as you examine where you are, maybe you have positioned yourself and you have a, a voice and an ear and a listening ear, but the Lord is wanting to move you to a greater place. Whatever, friends, let's not miss out. Let's not be like the Israelites as they see the call of Elijah saying, how long will you falter? Their response was much like the church today, and that is to say nothing, to do nothing. If we're looking to grow in the grace of God, if we're looking to mature in wisdom, if we're looking to have a successful Christian life, uh, an intimacy with Christ in 2010, it, it begins right here on our knees, asking the Lord to examine our hearts. Is there idols in your life? Is there a lack of obedience? Are you being crowded out? Let's foster this time with him. Don't waste any time. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's like a normal Sunday. It just happens to be the first one of the year. Let's get out on a good foot. Let's humble ourselves before the sight of the Lord. Let's engage. Let's take communion with a new attitude of examining our lives. Father, we thank you for what you have done in our lives, and we know that it is true what you've done in Elijah's life, and we know that it's true that you want to speak to our lives. And so, King Jesus, have your way with us as your spirit will come and minister to our hearts in the depths of who we are. Lord, some are in need of rest and are restless and stressed. And we pray that you would bring comfort. We pray you would bring peace. We pray that you would bring whatever is needed for us to get on mission to ultimately move for your glory. We don't want to stay in a place of lukewarmness. We don't want to be caught in a place of faltering between kings. 
You are our king. And so we submit to you now and trust you. We love you. We pray in your precious name. Amen.